This is The Blacklist Podcast. I'm your host, or one of your hosts, founder and CEO of The Blacklist, Franklin Leonard. And I'm director of community at The Blacklist, Kate Hagan. Kate, how are things going for you? You know, aside from being sick of my own cooking, I'm doing pretty well, all in all. Uh, I'm still powering through the later seasons of ER. I watched some John Woo movies this week, all is well. How about you, Franklin? Movies are seeing me through, actually. I watched Strange Love two nights ago and Three Days of the Condor last night. And I feel like I am very much ready for the moment that we are living through. Haven't decided what I'm watching yet tonight, but you know, it's great. The internet gives us access to a lot, if not everything. Definitely not everything. May I humbly suggest Alan J. Pakula's The Parallax View, because today is his birthday, the day that we are recording this, if we are in the 70s conspiracy thriller hole, which is a good one to be in right now. What's funny is I was actually, that was on the potential list, and now realizing that it's his birthday, thank you for that, that will be what I watch tonight. But let's just jump to the interview. People don't really care about what I'm watching. This is a fun one today. I've been a fan of his for a very long time, going all the way back to Parks and Recreation. And it's really been fun to watch his evolution as a writer and storyteller and now director and producer because his credits now include everything from Master of None and Forever and Little America and now on Netflix, Tiger Tail, which everybody should watch. It's a really beautiful film, the story of Alan's grandfather, loosely told. What'd you think, Kate? Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting watching the film in a time when we're not really going outside because it's such a lush visual world and celebrates public spaces and being in places with people and how that can kind of shape our lives. This is a great conversation with Alan. It's basically film school in an hour of a podcast. Alan is going to talk about so many movies you need to see. He's going to give you the inside track on even what movies to watch together or what Bergman films you need to watch if you are trying to unlock character-based secrets. I think that's a really interesting part of our conversation with Alan is we really dig into a character-based approach to comedy, which he talks about sort of started for him at the Harvard Lampoon on to Parks and Rec and now all the way to Tiger Tail on Netflix. Kate Hagan tells no lies. This conversation is kind of absurdly good. It was a very exciting one to be a part of and it's very exciting to be able to share it with you all now. So without further ado, director of Tiger Tail and writer and producer, Alan Yang. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. All right, Alan. So I think to begin our conversation today, we're going to begin where we always begin by asking about the first movie you saw in a movie theater. Wow, that is a really tough call. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember. It was probably something around the time of Aladdin, the animated movie. <laughs> and hey, I remember, that's a classic, though. Yeah, man. A, a very strong. For a while, that was my favorite Disney movie. And I'll just remember, I just remember uh, watching that movie, loving it. And then I don't know why this happened, but not too long after that, I think my parents took me to see The Last Emperor and I fell asleep and just could not get through it. And I'm like, why did you take a small child to see The Last Emperor? It makes no sense. <laughs> it's been amazing the number of people we talked to who were like, yeah, my first movie was definitely not age appropriate and my parents clearly <laughs> wanted to see it. And I, that, that's my first memory in a movie theater. 
Yeah, just come along. Oh, God, they got parents just so cooped up. They're just like, we just need to see this movie. <laughs> You're seeing Cape Fear with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but literally, like, stuff on exactly that level. Um, but do you remember the movie that made you fall in love with movies? Like, the thing that made you say, hey, wait a minute. This may be what I want to do. Oh, wow. And 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 this is going to span so many genres. But from very early on, um, it was it – was, fun exciting huge movies blockbusters really i mean jurassic park it was indiana jones it was star wars those were the movies that when you go in and 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 just the feeling i remember the lines wrapping around the block you know that's that's how old i am where i remember a time before you know pre-arranged reserved tickets right and and i just i remember going to jurassic park and my dad seeing the line and just being furious (laughs) saying (laughs) oh my god we're gonna wait for this movie about dinosaurs but i had read the book when i was 10 or something and i couldn't wait for the movie to come out and um uh, and like sitting in a dark room with uh, you know 500 strangers 200 strangers whatever it is uh there's no substitute for it and then and then later on you know as you get over the spectacle then you start seeing the craft and you start seeing emotional storytelling and 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 different kinds of movies start moving you but yeah the gateway is is, is movies like that big movies and, and comedies and, and big fun uh, big tent movies yeah it's interesting i think you and i are about the same age because jurassic park was my first one too and i remember like the opening weekend the, the first time i saw it literally going through the line, getting in, watching it, and then going back and immediately getting in the back of the line for, like, the next available screen. Um, and then seeing it again, like, the Sunday also. I think we're all kind of craving that theatrical experience right now, too. You know, that nostalgia for returning not just to the movie theater, but all of the adjacent stuff around the movie theater. Like, you guys saying, like, you know, with your parents and sort of bargaining and begging to be like, can we please go back? I think we're all really craving that right now. Absolutely. And and by the way, on the topic of Jurassic Park, give me one second and, and I will show you something. This is great podcasting, but for the stream, I'll, let me show you this this prop. <laughs> <laughs> Alan has gone into his home, yeah, yeah, to bring us a uh, prop. Oh, shut up! (laughs) You need to you need to do the the, do the object description though for the audio feed. This is is a barbasol can. It's I think it's a replica, but it's a barbasol can that Dennis Nedry, the character played by Wayne Knight in the movie, uses to smuggle out the embryos. And I was such a big Jurassic Park fan. We used to do a Secret Santa. Uh, over at Parks and Rec in the writer's room. And Aisha Muhar, uh, my good friend, co-writer, former roommate, uh, got me this as a gift. It has embryos inside. (laughs) So it's a working Barbasol shaving cream, a shaving cream can with embryos inside. So shout out to Aisha for this amazing gift. Shout out to Aisha. That is a truly amazing gift. It's a real real gift. It's it's crazy. It's a brochure (laughs) from Jurassic Park. So, yeah. (laughs) I had to do it because it was sitting right behind me. Yeah, that's... uh... Aisha should be teaching classes on how to gift give. That is an amazing <laughs> gift. If you've wow. seen Parks and Rec and you've seen how good Leslie Nope is at giving gifts, that's partially inspired by our Secret Santa and partially inspired by Aisha and many other people who went above and beyond over the course of, uh, of that show. I'm not at all surprised to learn that the Parks and Rec uh, team were good gift givers. That is entirely <laughs> consistent with the A lot of, of warmth. show. A lot of warmth. Yeah, you know, we're talking about movie theaters, so I think that's a great segue into our next question, which is talking about the theatrical experience. What's your ideal movie theater situation? Uh, Where do you sit? What are your snacks? Do you like to go by yourself? Do you like to go with a group of friends? And how is your home viewing situation set up? Uh, so in a movie theater, I love number one, love IMAX. So and there's there's a few IMAX theaters that um, I love. We I have a I have a movie thread with some of my friends, and it has a rotating name right now. It's called Gemini Men. So <laughs> it's a little bit dated, but we've left it yeah, like that true. just because we thought the name was good. And so uh, you know the IMAX is in LA. Uh, we go to the Universal City Walk one just because it's a big screen, and then in New York, there's the the Lincoln Center one um, is is kind of the biggest one. Uh, so that's always always nice if it's an option. Um, I like the the dome, obviously, at, at, at Arclight as well. It's just for the his, you know historical nature of it. I, I remember going to see a, a Tarantino premiere there. It was, it was amazing. Um, and as far as going alone or with other people, oh, I also want to shout out the Metrograph in New York, which is um, yeah. 
when I'm when I'm, when I'm in New York, it, it's I can't believe how lucky I am because I've reached the point in my life where I all I do is watch art house films that I didn't watch because I didn't go to film school. So I'm so behind. I need to I watched like Breathless last week. You know, I was like, I gotta watch yeah. this um, every every classic. And the Metrograph is within walking distance of my house and and uh, in, in New York and or my apartment and. I love that. Um, as far as far as going alone or with a group, uh, I love a big group to go see a big, you know, Marvel movie. Um, I love going with you know my girlfriend to go see a smaller film. You know, th- there's all kinds of, uh, of of ways I enjoyed. I haven't gone alone to that many movies until recently, and in the last couple years, um, because I have such amazing proximity in New York to all of these art house theaters, I'll just go in the middle of the day. I went and saw. Uh, Red Desert, the Antonioni movie at like 3.30 on a Tuesday. <laughs> and I was like, it was so crazy. Like it was just me in the movie theater. And then I saw two other people walk in and and then I left the theater and the other two people were uh, Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig. Because <laughs> those oh my were the God. only people going to see that movie at <laughs> that 3.30. Is... I was like, oh, it's Antonioni's first color movie. I got to go see this. And that is was... 100% <laughs> like a Metrograph moment right there. I know. That is incredible. <laughs> uh, okay, so the, the flip of this is what is the strangest way you've ever watched a movie? Right? Uh you know, I'm trying to think. Uh, one of the things, like, I'm, I'm trying to jog a crazy memory. One of the things, like, this is, I don't know if it's safe or not. Uh, we want to do a drive-in theater because because now that during this weird yep. point in time where we can't go see a communal movie theater experience, um, uh, I would love to, to, to be able to do that. I'm trying to think about, um, obviously, uh, not ideal situations for watching a movie. Uh, I've, I've gone, I've flown to Taiwan and watched like five movies in one go. I don't think that's recommended, yeah. <laughs> but it is, it yeah. is a recipe for crying. But it's crying. a great way to spend, yeah, 15 <laughs> hours in the air for sure. What is it about crying to movies on airplanes? Like, is there just like a curse? Cause it's, and you can watch things you've seen before that don't make you cry and you're just weeping in your seat. <laughs> I think there's honestly a science behind it. I think that I, I read, I remember reading a paper that said it's the oxygen is low and, and you're yeah. alone, you're in a strange environment. You're generally, you know, you're watching alone generally. Like, but man, you should have seen me after I watched Coco on a plane. It was, it was a lot of crying, yeah, man. Yeah, it was a lot of feels, crying. Yeah, that one is not <laughs> advisable for high altitude viewing. Uh, I would definitely recommend against it. Um, turning a little bit personally. So, you know, obviously you and I both went to Harvard. But you were super cool, and we're on the staff of the Lampoon, um, and then went from there to Carson Daly, right? Like right after school. Am I making that, that was up? my first job? Yeah, I was uh, I was unemployed for for about a year after school, just trying to apply to jobs and all that. Also, I love that you called me super cool for being on the Lampoon. The Lampoon is full of nerds. <laughs> the Lampoon it is, is, well, it could not I, be nerdier. <laughs> I feel like I feel like the dynamic in Harvard is a little bit different, maybe than a lot of places. But I also feel like the the definite like sort of nerddom and cooldom like flipped at some point, like right around the time that we were undergrad and right after college like look I was basically Steve Urkel in high school and I remember my mom telling me like it'll get better it'll be fine just be yourself and I did and then at some point like NBA stars started dressing like Urkel and <laughs> yeah, Russell Westbrook man <laughs> yeah Russell Westbrook was the one I'm talking about but like, even LeBron like they all of a sudden became cool and were I don't know I feel like it flipped but yes I remember the Lampoon folks as being cool which maybe says more about me than it does about them anyway the point is how, how did those early experiences like shape your sense of narrative and character writing and like your sense of humor? Well, you know, I'll tell you, I had no idea that this was a job. What I do now, writing, producing, directing, this was not an inkling in my mind as a young, you know, as a kid, uh, as a as a teenager, none of that, because it seemed like another world. You know, my parents are immigrants and, and, and uh, where I grew up in Riverside, California, there's, I didn't know anyone in the entertainment industry. Uh, I would watch films and, and TV shows and those names were meaningless to me. You know, well, what is a producer? What is an associate producer? What any of that means? And so two things happened when I went to college. Uh, I, I started playing in a punk rock band, which is really fun because I always loved music. And, um, you know, we would on the weekends, we would tour around and, and, and play shows and stuff and record a record. And um, and then I got on the Lampoon, which is a comedy magazine and and allowed me to hang out with really funny writers and just hang out with them and, and, and spend time with people who were the kind of interesting people that I kind of wanted to spend more time with. And so that kind of unlocked a door where just mentally I was like, Oh, is this, could this be a job? Could I be creative for a living? And that, that was 
a huge Rubicon for me to cross, you know, from the age of 17 until about the age of 1920 is like when I was making that decision. And so when I graduated from school, I just wanted to take the leap. And, um, I told my, I told my parents and, and, you know, obviously a conversation that, uh, an Asian parent does not want to engage in, but, but I was like, yeah, I'm going to move out to LA and try to write jokes for a living. Yeah, it turns uh, out black, it, black parents don't want to hear that either. In my <laughs> no, I don't think it's very supported in, yeah. in that many communities. Are there any parents who want to hear <laughs> I mean, that? Yeah. I feel like there are, everybody has that I conversation. I feel like there are some, but it's a very <laughs> narrow sliver of society. Yeah. And, and I had been a biology major as well. So it's a doubly, just a, you know, a real, a real knife in the back there to my parents. But, um, yeah, no, n- and, not and, medical school, but exactly. Comedy. The exact opposite. And as far as story, narrative, character, emotion, all of that stuff, that that for me, uh, I started learning later in life, I would say. I came out of school and 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 I was interested in comedy. Obviously, I always loved film as, as we talked about. You know, I loved movies and and you know, I liked all kinds of movies. It, not just comedies. Obviously, I cared about comedy a lot, but I always had broad ranging interests and was kind of genre agnostic. And and now I feel like uh, I've been fortunate enough to become relatively genre agnostic in my work as well. You know, I look back at what I've been lucky enough to work on. And it's like you said, a, a talk show, a, a, an animated show, a mockumentary, a, a, a comedy about, you know, social implications and, and, and uh, a supernatural show, an anthology, and now a, mo- a drama, which is, which is so crazy. You know, it's, it's actually a lot of different things. Um, and, and, you know, Parks and Rec really was educational in the sense that um, those writers, Greg Daniels and Mike Schur, who created that show, really prize character writing and they praise uh, they prize emotional relationships in the writing and they really care about creating three dimensional characters and not just a joke bag. And so that was the very beginning of learning how to craft a story, learning how to set up relationships, learning how to um, create the emotional internal story that drives any sort of really story worth its salt. Yeah, that's. I, I'm glad you brought up Parks and Rec again because uh, I want to talk about a bit about the writers' room for Parks and Rec, which I feel like we can all sort of agree upon was one of the best assemblages of talent, uh, comedy or otherwise, in the last decade. Um, but you know, coming from that sort of really nurturing environment, what was the transition like as you stepped into more of a leadership role as a co-creator of Forever and Master of None? Did it shift your writing process, knowing that you'd be responsible? for handling more of the sort of day-to-day practical production? I, I thought it was just a tremendous education and, and uh, you know, credit to those guys for uh, teaching along the way and not just sort of, uh, you know, letting you sink or swim. I, I think Mike and Greg both have a philosophy of hiring younger writers who they think you know, have some promise, have some potential, and then showing them the ropes in some way. So I started on that show as a baby writer. You know, I had very little experience. I was probably 25 or something when I got hired there. And over the course of that show, which ran seven seasons, 125 episodes, that was enough time for me to go from being totally green to helping run the room and then helping and then directing episodes and and helping run the set. And getting more involved, being in on studio calls and network calls and seeing the whole process from the inside and also helping guide it. You know, by the end of that show, I was, um, you know, Mike was kind enough to let me help him and and, and sort of be there as, as a very, you know, strong supportive number two on that show. So um, I couldn't, you know, you're never ready, essentially, to get your own show. You're never fully prepared. <laughs> you don't really know what it's like. But as far as we were concerned, you know, Aziz Ansari and I, who created Master of None with me, uh, talked about how, man, if we had gotten this show at 25 when we knew nothing, that's scary. <laughs> you know, that's scary. We yeah. felt like we had a little bit of an education. And I think more and more people are getting thrown in there. And look, if you're brilliant, if you're a genius, maybe you can do it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm emphatically not one. So it was good to have uh, that training and good to have um, just get your feet wet. But it is still a shock. You know, when you're on set, you know, I remember first season of Master None, we looked around and we were, there was some decision to be made. Our line producer was panicking. There's, you know, something something really massive coming up. And Z's and I looked around. It's like, oh, where's the dad on set? He like tells us what to do now. It's like, oh, we're the dads. Oh, this is really, this is scary, man. We got to make the call. This is like, we either shut down for the day or whatever it was. And it's like, you know, I, I was happy that I had been on set for six, seven years of Parks and Rec before that. And even with those six and seven years, you still had the moment of like, 
wait, where's the dad? Oh, right, it's us. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I feel for all these showrunners who, you know, as we get into a new, enter a new era of show running and the climate of how, who gets to make shows, who gets to run shows, there are more and more first timers who maybe have never even been in a writer's room or never even been on set. I know plenty of showrunners who have never been on a set before and then they are that's running so a wild. show and it's a $200 million show or whatever it is. So yeah. uh, that's a lot. That's a lot. So you guys won your Emmy for the second episode of that first season of Master of None, right? The parents episode. That's right. And it also feels like, I'm sure you were mining a lot of personal experience in previous writing, but that definitely felt like it was very personal. Um, And then obviously Lena Waithe won the next year for like another super personal story. And I'm curious like how you approached mining your own biography, your own autobiography to, to write that episode and like whether or not you and Aziz sort of passed anything on to Lena, like advice wise, when she sort of set about doing the same thing. Absolutely. Because it obviously and, worked, whatever it was. Yeah, well, well, it, it was just a gut feeling, right? And, and I think what we've realized in the process of making those episodes and in our work subsequently the personal stuff is just the best stuff. It's just the best stuff. I know that's a, a broad generalization, but when you can identify either how you reacted in that situation or someone you knew reacted or what the emotional sort of content of those stories and those scenes are, you just have such a leg up and you care so much more. So I remember the genesis of that episode was we we were casting about trying to figure out what the show was. This was before we had a straight to series order, which was unbelievably fortunate, but we didn't know what the show was. We had, I'll be honest, we had a much inferior version of the show (laughs) before we came up with a lot of these ideas. It was like, yeah, he's in New York and he's like kind of hanging around and dating his funny friends. It's like, okay, that's every show, but what's, what makes this show, this show. And I remember we were banging our heads against the wall and we were in a hotel room in, in New York trying to write the show. And I looked around and I just said, you know what? no matter what happens, uh, this is all gravy. Cause, cause my dad grew up in a rural part of Taiwan with a single mother and two brothers and not enough food to eat. And the, uh, one, one day his mom told him to go outside and kill their pet chicken for dinner. Cause they just had no food to eat. And Aziz looked at me and said, is that story true? I said, as far as I know, it's my dad claims <laughs> it's true. He said, well, shit, man, that's way more interesting than any of the stuff we've talked about all day today. The show could just be about that. Like, that's way more interesting. It's like, maybe yeah. it should be. And we just started talking about it. And, you know, any story like that where you can share an experience about someone you know that's really personal and, and it, you can immediately get what it is, it it, 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 it shines through. It, it really resonates. And so um, we really, when we came up with the idea of, of sort of exploring the Denise character more season two, it was almost by necessity as well, because uh, we got a very funny uh, call from Lena before that season. It was like, guys, this is sound, going to sound really crazy, but I got to miss a lot of this season because Steven Spielberg uh, wants to cast me in a movie. <laughs> and we're like, great. I remember, I, remember th- I remember this era of her life and her telling yeah. me that that had, she only told me about it after it was all over, but it, I just remember being like, oh, 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 okay. That's happening. Yeah, exactly. And 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 we knew we were really happy for her number one. And but we remembered, you know, the reason we cast her in the show, she she was mainly a writer. You know, she was a writer for Bones, right. and she was, you know, writing pilots and all that. And we just remember uh, Allison Jones sent her over, and we just met a lot of people generally in terms of um, who we, you know who we wanted to cast. We just wanted to get a feel for who the people were because everyone in that show kind of plays a version of themselves and you know z's and eric and and you know his parents they're all kind of themselves and so we wanted someone who brought something interesting to the role and lena was one of the first people we met and we always remembered her We, we we met with 50 people and we always remembered her coming in in a bulls jersey and timberlands and just telling us crazy stories right off the bat it's like this person has personality this is an interesting person i'd like to see on screen and who i haven't seen on screen before and it would be really fun and interesting to have her be aziz's friend and so cut to a year later i'm in a spielberg movie which is like that's how that's how fast life happens and so we're like great well what we want to do is since we don't have you for that long is build an episode around your real life and the idea of can we build it around the idea of you coming out and the idea of you telling your mom because we knew there was a story there. We had kind of talked about it with her loosely because we're all friends before that. 
And we were like, Lena, we, we need you in this. We need you to give as much as you can and just get on the phone with us, get in the room with us, talk to the writers, talk to us one-on-one and really start you know, being as honest as possible. That's what, how it's going to be the best. You know, we did it season one with the parents episode and we talked to our parents and we really were as vulnerable as we could be. And we want you to do the same thing and go deeper. And so, uh, you know, obviously we're, we, we couldn't be happier with how that episode turned out. And, and, um, the fact that it spans 25 years and, and it's, it's really treading territory that at the time we felt like we hadn't seen before. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it, the, the, that, that, that show is a lesson I think in how the personal and the specific can be the most universal. Could not say it better myself. So one of the reasons why I was really excited to interview you for the podcast, separate from your extraordinary creative work, is that you have given two of my favorite ever awards season uh, speeches. Uh, the number one may go to Sandler's acceptance speech of the Independent Spirit Awards this year. If you have not seen it yet, I highly recommend it, everybody. It's amazing. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you two quotes, and I'm going to ask you to respond to each one, because I think that they are... I've referenced them many, many times, but I'd love to have you talk a little bit more about them. And the first one is, 17 million Asian Americans in this country, and there are 17 million Italian Americans. They have The Godfather, Goodfellas, Rocky, The Sopranos, We Got Long Duck Dong, We've got a long way to go, but I know we can get there. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I did my research, man. I Googled how many Asian Americans there are. <laughs> that was, yeah. Well, by I the way, this is as a, as a numbers person, wh- one of the many reasons I respect this quote. <laughs> I remember I, at the time also I got a little bit of blowback. It was like, wow, those are like a lot of those characters are gangsters. And I was like, you know what? All of those works are masterpieces. I would kill to have, you know, I would kill to have a godfather, an Asian godfather. I would kill to have an Asian Rocky. I would kill to have an Asian Sopranos. Can you imagine? I mean, that, I those mean, don't exist yet. Those, so that way, was my give point. me as many of those as possible. Exactly. Right? That, that was my point. And look, every, every sort of uh, group has faced stereotyping and racism in the past. But my point was that we are not even close and we're still not close. I, a lot of people are saying, Hey, you know, you've got all these movies and shows and stuff. Now it's like, we have like three movies. <laughs> it's like, right. hey, we're not, we're not there yet. It's like, y'all got every other movie. It's, it's look yep. at the history of filmmaking. Um, so uh, it really, it really was just trying to point out that th- there are a lot of us, there are a lot of us and, and we're people. I know how trivial that sounds, but we're, human beings we have complex emotions and feelings and world you know worldviews and we haven't seen that on screen at all like it was it was a zero i mean that was what four years ago whatever that speech was yeah. whenever that was and and yes we've come quite a bit of a ways in in, in four years but it's still scratching the surface. I stand by that because we've, we, you know, it's great to see Bong Joon-ho carry home a, a million Oscars, but you know, that's one man and, and <laughs> we, have, we, have a, we, have a, we have a ways to go still. Yeah, I completely agree. So the other one, sort of similar to that point, I think this was the Critics' Choice Awards. Uh, Thank you to all the straight white guys who dominated movies and television so hard and for so long that stories about anyone else seem kind of fresh and original because you guys crushed it for so long, everything else seems kind of different. Yeah, man, you look at that's dom- it's utter domination. I mean, look at it's the true. film canon. Look at the film canon. I mean, American film canon, of course, but even just worldwide film canon. Obviously, you have Asian films, amazing. You have Ozu and Kurosawa and and yeah. Walker White. But but you look at just look at the sight and sound list, or look at you know this is one of my favorites, and and obviously it's a very skewed uh, sort of voting body here, but you ever look at the top 250 movies on IMDb, which we all look at IMDb to look up whatever. And we don't look at the ratings necessarily, but eh, you know, they're on there. You look at them. I think I looked at the top hundred and I think one of them stars a woman out of a hundred. It's like, it's a it's Amelie. It's like 78. And obviously directed by Jean-Pierre Genet, not directed by a woman, but it's like, Every other movie, it's like every Lord of the Rings is in there. Every Star Wars is in there. Jurassic Park's probably in there. But like, it's that's that's our canon. Our canon yeah. is essentially straight white guys. And again, that's no slam on them. They're geniuses. There's been look, you, uh, Stanley Kubrick, Ingmar Bergman, you know, <laughs> all these guys, Truffaut, Godard, Antonioni. Yeah, they're straight white. They're they're geniuses. I, I'm not taking anything away from them. They're the best. It's great. What I'm saying is because you, me, Kate, everybody. That's what we watch, right? That's what we watch, yep. and that's what we're familiar with, and that has established what a film even is. So now, anything else, it looks if it looks any different, 
it's suddenly, it feels really radical. And even if you're, you know, that's something I was talking to uh, Elvis Mitchell uh, at one point, this is a a couple years ago. um, And we were talking about, you know, even the, there's a, there's a black and white episode of Master of None, which is kind of like a bicycle thieves takeoff. It's kind of, you know, Tzika homage. And he was like, man, it opens and it's this Tzika homage, but then it's uh, a brown guy talking to a black woman. And it's like, Right, you never see that. It's like Tzika isn't shooting true. that. Like he's never shooting no, that. No, and the thing it's, is, it's I remember, I remember that moment and thinking, yeah, I've definitely never seen this before. Yeah, and and so I, I kind of it didn't really crystallize for me in that in that way, and 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 so now it's it's sort of more conscious because I'm trying to watch those great films, right? I'm trying to watch, um, and, and soak in all of that knowledge from from these great great filmmakers. And then apply them to modern concerns because those topics have never been tackled with that kind of technique. And these stories haven't been told. So, so in Tiger Tail, you know, you haven't seen the story of an Asian American immigrant who comes to this country and then has a fraught relationship with his English speaking daughter. It just doesn't, ex- it just doesn't exist. Certainly not right. executed in the way that these films did. You know, you can watch a Ho Shashen, Edward Yang, Wong Kar Wai movie. They're never coming to America and walking around the Bronx and doing laundry surrounded by people who don't look like them and speaking English. You know, that just doesn't exist. So that's why it's a little bit exciting. And, you know, that's why what I mentioned in that speech is just it hasn't been done yet. It hasn't been done yet. So the idea is to set your bar really high. You know, look, I'm never going to be as great as those guys are, but but set the bar high, watch great stuff and and and, you know, steal liberally, (laughs) but apply it to, to topics that haven't been covered before. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Very much in that same vein, do you remember the first time you saw a character in a film that felt like, oh, this is me, this is a person that feels like they're authentic to my own experiences, like I recognize myself you know, on screen? Oh, boy. I I, I don't want to be sort of... <laughs> This sounds self-aggrandizing, but I don't know if I've seen it. You know, it's like it's like it's just not the same. You know, (laughs) it's 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 funny. I tend to yeah, I tend to agree with you. Like I, you know, I I'm a fat woman. I'm a bisexual woman, and like the the closest I have gotten are a couple of TV characters. But there are there's so many people that you're like, yeah, there's nobody that's ever sort of fit that mold of like who I am, what my experiences are, and it's weird when you have that realization. It's weird to think about. And obviously when we were kids, it was a 0% chance, right? There was just no, you know, I was watching, you know, Empty Nest. I was watching about a show about yeah. a retired was, doctor in Florida. I was literally, <laughs> and this is terrible, I was lucky to have Urkel. Yeah, I was like, I mean, oh. There's at least a reference. <laughs> black nerd and then Kadeem Hardison on Different World, Dwayne Wade. Sure. It's like, oh, Dwayne black Wade. math, yeah, du- black math major. That's literally me. But that was it. And I was I was lucky, I realized in retrospect. <laughs> yeah, lucky to have Urkel, the Franklin Leonard story. <laughs> By the way, but, throw, <laughs> throw it as a chapter in the memoir. Just throw it in there. But it legitimately, you know, it, and, and that was kind of not just on screen, but where I was growing up. You know, it was that I remember the custodian at my elementary school was Asian. 
And almost every day, a kid would be like, is that your dad? Is that your dad? It's like, no, just because it's the only other Asian person you've ever seen. It's not your dad. And, and, but, but the landscape on television was even worse. I wish that there was no one who looked like my dad on screen or no one who looked like me. And if so, you know, it wasn't a guy who like loved basketball and loved punk rock and, lo- you know, and was interested right. in comedy. Like, where's that? That character didn't exist, certainly when I was growing up. Now... Now we're getting there. We're, we're getting we're a little getting closer. There. You know, we're getting a little closer. And, and again, I don't want to say that there hasn't been. Obviously, there have been characters I saw myself, and you don't have to be the same race. You don't have to be any, you know, any right. of that stuff. But, but you know, taking the, the the question kind of on its own terms, it's it's really the more the negative space that I remember than the sort of multitude of other characters who I could be yeah. like, yeah, that's me. It's it was more like, oh my god, you know, in the last few years, you kind of realize we're just starting to see those people on screen. Literally in the last couple of years, it's staggering. But you mentioned the canon, and, and this this is sort of a conversation that often revolves around the canon. So now we're going to just ask about like your favorite stuff from the canon in very specific ways. Uh, are there films in the canon that you just flat refuse to watch for whatever reason? Wow. You're just like mm, not doing it. <laughs> flat refuse <laughs> to watch. Uh, I don't know about refuse. I think in recent times, um, I went on a real kick a couple of years ago where I was really sort of patient and I would watch, you know, oh, I'm going to watch Brighter Summer Day. It's four hours long. <laughs> and right now, right now in the, in these Corona yeah. times, I'm always tempted to like, uh, can we at least watch something? You know, the other night it was like, oh, do I watch, you know, Come and See, or do I watch something more modern? And it yeah, was like, oh, me fair. and my girlfriend watched Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It's like, okay, great. Like, I can watch well, that. That's like, I mean, you know, that's, that's a one-to-one at least. <laughs> uh, you yeah, know, exactly. At least it's like great for great, <laughs> not like. Yes, exactly. It's not like, a, you know, I wasn't flipping over to Bloodshot or something. But, exactly. But, uh, but um, <laughs> refusing, no, I, I think I think it's more, uh, I, I kind of go in waves and sort of like, okay, Sometimes, not always, but inspired by a thing I might be working on. So, like, hey, uh, recently I went on an Ozu kick. So, oh, look, I in one. I don't recommend this, but in one night I watched Late Spring and Autumn Afternoon, and it was essentially the same movie twice. <laughs> so it's like, and sometimes you'll 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 slip up, and that will happen. But uh, right. um, but no, I, and I, and what I said earlier was totally true, which is like I'm a naive. Like I I didn't you know I took a couple film classes in college, but I did not get the full education. I I, I was a science major, like I said. So it's been a double edged sword because I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge. I'm not able to like do everything, but at the same time, I'm excited. You know, I get to see, you know, like I mentioned, it's like, okay, you know, I'll watch 400 blows or something. And I haven't seen it a hundred times. So that's kind of cool. And I'm, I'm getting to watch these things for the first time as someone who's made a movie and who's someone who's made some shows and, and, and has some experience making stuff. And so, oh, wow, the origin of the jump cut is here. And that's, that's interesting to me. Whereas I think if I were a 19 year old film student, it's a little less tangible, right? It's a little yeah. less uh, inspiring, I think. Because, you know, you watch these old movies. Like, I watched Sunrise, like, not that long ago. It's like, man, Sunrise kind of holds up. It's like, this is really crazy. Oh, like, yeah, it's actually, it's I should go watch that. Yeah, I mean, That's I saw it in the really... Metrograph. I saw it in the Metrograph, so I had to watch it. Yeah, and it's funny, too, because as somebody who went to film school, I feel like a lot of times when you're seeing these classic films in film school, you are absolutely not ready, and you, you're you like, ugh, Tokyo Story, I'm so bored. <laughs> and then you see them 10 years later, and you're like, wow, I'm an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, and it's maturity, too. It's life experience. You know, Ozu, yeah. I think, probably a, a, more than anyone, it benefits, you know, it's about looking back on life. It's about regret, and it's about, you know, things you decisions you wish you had made differently. So, yeah, I think my enjoyment of... Of, of, of Tokyo story. And I think it'll be different when I'm 60. And if I have kids, you know, it, of course, it'll be different. And, and my appreciation of it now will seem trivial and small. So so that's, you know, that's truly great films, you know, uh, kind of the flip side of that question. Was there anything in the sort of cinematic canon that you resisted watching put off watching for a really long time? And then when you finally saw it, you're like, Oh, my God, this is my jam. Uh, it's honestly some Antonioni because I saw that was some one of the directors I actually did watch in college and I hated it. I hated it. I, I mean, like I, I, and I and it's almost exactly what you just said where I just couldn't get through it. You know, I just couldn't even yeah. I couldn't finish. I would f- maybe staying up too late in college, but I would go we would we got to see these movies projected on big screens. You know, we had a movie theater that we would get to see some of these movies in and I just remember hating Antonioni and then ironically, you know, years later we're making a season based on great Italian film and and the 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 awakening of watching La Ventura and 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 you know 
just getting it a little more and 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 um and then extending you know i watched armor cord with aziz in, in in at the ifc center and it was like oh my god there's a fellini movie it's just incredible and and it's yeah. all dubbed it's like you know he's playing music while they're while they're filming and and but you look at the the technique and you look at the feeling and the 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 emotions it evokes and that's when you realize that's all movie is forget technique forget anything you do to accomplish what you're trying to do it's all about is it effective did it work Does, was it in service of you letting people know the way you see the world and communicating those emotions and ideas effectively and there are one billion ways to do it there are one billion ways to do it whether it's the ozu way or the you know the super cutty and, and extremely frenetic <laughs> camera work you know what you know they, 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 there's there's both extremes and they both work so we're going to turn a, another 180 on a different axis what is a movie that everyone thinks is terrible that you will defend forever Oh, uh, this is a good one. <laughs> this is a really so, good one. So we, we've done, I'm not going to watch it. I didn't understand it, but then I loved it. What's the thing that most people are like, dog, what? And you're just like, no, this is amazing. <laughs> okay, so th this one isn't seen as terrible, but I think it's very divisive. And that is the movie Love Actually, which people in the UK yeah. hate. I don't know if it's you know, know this, but no, no, people no, no, no. in the it UK is, It is highly controversial. Hate, I've seen full-blown arguments about it hate this movie and i will say there are there are elements of the movie that are not for me <laughs> there are definitely elements that are not for me because you know like uh, franklin you've known me for a while you know like generally my taste is restraint and tasteful yeah. and sort of show don't tell and and, yeah. and don't be sentimental it's, unapo be it's unapologetic it's unapologetic yes, be emotional but don't be melodramatic that movie right. is in every way you know in some ways it's paint by numbers in some ways it's as on the nose as possible but you know what i watched again maybe it was because i was on a plane but my girlfriend and i watched it on a plane and it like i was like you know what like six out of the nine of these stories hit pretty hard you know it's yeah, like it's the alan Rickman's story is pretty good and like it's just like, it's, it's just <laughs> they work it works and i think it's what you said like it's it just works and you it's can have functional. all the criticism in the world you want for it but if it makes you feel who cares exactly and and this is okay so these are not also universally reviled but they're not i wouldn't say uh, film school favorites uh the, the fast and furious movies uh, i've seen yes, all of them i'm with and, you and, and and uh you know what i i i would say fast five is unambiguously like I would say great. Like, it's great. And it's like, I it's just for that the, kind of movie. It is it. It is it. You know? I was the junior executive on Fast Five. I am oh, flattered. By, I am flattered <laughs> by your praise. I didn't um, know that. This wasn't an inside job. This was not an inside job. But it was, uh, <laughs> no, look, it's, uh, I, it's funny because people, for whatever reason, think of me as like, oh, you love all these sort of great, like, you know, Criterion Collection movies. And I'm like, yes, I definitely do. But I love the Fast franchise, and and we are not the only ones that are aggressive advocates for it as as true entertaining cinema. Yeah, and I I think you can be omnivorous like that. I certainly am. I mean, like I I, I my tastes really run the gamut from as we were saying all of these you know hey these are subtitled movies that are on Criterion streaming, but at the same time it's like like I've seen every Star Wars movie, I've seen every Marvel movie. I like those big movies. Not everyone does, but you know I I. I think I told you about this, Franklin. I went in and met with Marvel about directing something for them. And I could I, I could go on and on about every character because I had seen them. I was like, what's Nebula's backstory? Like, I, like, cause I, cause I've seen all those movies, you know? I've seen and all those like, movies. And they were like, whoa, you need to settle down. <laughs> yeah, they're like, all right, nerd. <laughs> exactly, get the hell out of here. <laughs> I think uh, it's John Waters who says you have to have good taste to understand bad taste. So like you were saying about being an uh, omnivorous, but it's so true. I don't, the whole like, there is definitely a strain of film Twitter that is just like, ugh, I would never watch a Fast and the Furious movie, and you're like, well, you're missing out, friends. Yeah. That's on you. That yeah, it's fun. Loss. They're fun. Um, <laughs> so another question we like to ask, uh, so right before I worked at Universal and did Fast Five, like literally the job before that, I worked for Sidney Pollack and Anthony Minghella, and Sidney used to say that uh, he was only interested in making movies about two subjects, love and war, because they were the only two things that were no closer to understanding than we were several thousand years ago, which still screws with my head to this day. Uh, and it also begets this question. Favorite movie about love, favorite movie about war? Oh, wow. That's a really incredible question. Um, so uh, favorite movie about love, I have, oh God, there's so many to choose from. Um, one that leaps to mind pretty, pretty 
pretty front of mind for me is Eternal Sunshine, uh, which is just, uh, I think about that movie a lot. I think about how well it's made and how well it's uh, written, obviously, and, and directed and performed. And and that's, you know, as far as modern movies go, that's really up there for me. I, I consider it modern, even, you know, it's like 20 years old yeah. or whatever. So um, that one's really up there for me. I, we, I was discussing uh, her the other day, too. I know that's much more recent, but those those kind of sit in the same world for me. They're just like really well executed and 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 really well done um to go farther back and again i I don't want to name a million movies um but uh scenes from a marriage i I know seems like it's not about love but obviously is in some ways and 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 um, i recommend the television cut which is a million hours long but it's it's, uh it's it's just a little bit i think richer than the than the movie version um war movies i i have a couple as well i i this is very recent, but I watched Battle of Algiers recently, and that's an incredible yeah. film. Um, I also want to shout out Children of Men, which is kind of a war movie and is a more recent pick, which is it, it, people don't think of it as a war movie, but it's, it's a it really has good elements. Answer. It has, an, has elements of that Corona. I'm always in awe of. He, he does an amazing job. Um, I still, you know, Paths of Glory is, is another one that that's just <laughs> like I saw yeah. 1917 recently. I was like, oh, wow, you just did Paths of Glory, but you have. 2020 technology and it was like you know you have like you you hear that shot of the soldier running across the field i'm like that's paths of glory but you just have incredible tech to to support it and um you know i I, there's there's almost too many it's weird like i've i've gotten on a little bit more of a kick of watching some war movies recently which is interesting that's why that's why i was going to watch come and see but um there's almost too many there's almost too many and love of course it's that i've definitely i haven't come close to making a war movie yet but love has been at the core of well so many things that i've i've worked on and and obviously is a thematic element in in everything you know i'm smiling about your comment on uh 1917 because i vaguely remember a co-worker of mine uh making the exact same observation about paths of glory (laughs) the monday morning after she saw it like i was literally having deja vu like she's beaming over here. I have no idea like, what you're talking about. I guess I have uh, to, no idea. I guess I have to acknowledge this. <laughs> it's it was top of mind for me. I I, I just recently rewatched Paths of Glory for some reason, and it was I just on on my TV, and and I just remember that shot because obviously the iconic shot for the movie. But yeah, it's it's similar. Yeah, everybody watch Paths of Glory if you liked 1917. Have we got a movie for you? <laughs> uh, you know, speaking about you know making things with love and really infusing that in what you do, I want to talk about about Tiger Tail, which by the time you're hearing this episode will be available on Netflix. It's such a lovely and emotionally rich film. I was thinking about things like the Joy Luck Club in terms of the scope and span and sort of emotionality of it. And that's all tied in with this really beautiful cinematography by Nigel Bluck, which reminded me a lot of Wong Kar Wai films. Um, So as a first time feature director, how did you kind of balance your personal influences with your own aesthetic? sensibilities in making Tiger Tail? Uh, that's a great question. I, I It was really a, a very sort of natural, I hope, fusion of the two. And, and so as you mentioned, the movie spans decades, generations, continents. So you're depicting a lot of different worlds and a lot of different emotional states of being. So you follow this character over the course of 60 some years of his life, right? And so we wanted to be very clear about delineating the look of each world. And so um, I sat down with Nigel and and we talked about how we would communicate this visually and and through sort of a, a visual language as opposed to just in the writing, just in the performance, just in the languages the characters were speaking. And one of the things that really unlocked the look of the film for me was that uh, we were able to shoot everything in the past in 16 millimeter which gives those scenes uh, a, a sort of intense, saturated, grainy, obviously, but more than that, just a, a sort of dreamlike quality. And what uh, you know, I've I've kind of said is is the movie is my dream of my father's dream of his past, and so it's filtered through all of these things. And on top of that, not only that, but it's my imagination again, through the lens of some of these great Taiwanese-American and Chinese-American filmmakers. So I've mentioned, um, you know, you mentioned Wong Kar Wai, which is a huge inspiration visually, of course, but performance-wise and staging-wise, uh, there's a lot of Edward Yang and and Ho Xiao Shen. Um, they work with very stationary cameras. So in my mind, the modern-day stuff 
was very sort of more still, um, not quite as extreme as Ozu, where you never move the camera, but we generally were on sticks and were in uh, in dollies and sticks in the present day. And in the past, it's almost all handheld. Um, and there's also colors, right? So color-wise, we wanted Taiwan to be intense and bright, red and green and the special Taiwanese cyan that you'll see and you'll see it in the last shot of the movie you'll see it in all the architecture there Um, and then modern day it was very much New York in the fall browns muted desaturated very sort of not drained of color entirely but a sort of representation of how modern day Pinjui's life is is lonely and is isolated and is not full of color and so um, I could go on and on about the technique but really that the ethos behind it was I'm inspired by a lot of these movies. I think there's a large percentage of the American audience that isn't even familiar with them. And you know, if you if you if you're watching Netflix next Friday, or I guess you're watching it now since this podcast will come out when the movie's out. If you are watching Tiger King and you flip over to Tiger Tail and you see these influences, you might not have seen In the Mood for Love. But if I can be a gateway to In the Mood for Love or Chunking Express or Happy Together, then then uh, I'd be really happy. <laughs> so it, it sure. really is. It really is all of those influences filtered, and 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 uh, the personal aspect of the story of it being based on my father and my family is 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 all in there as well. Yeah, getting into that sort of you know personal take on the material and the autobiographical elements, not just for you know sort of you, but the your larger family. How do you find that balance when you're trying to create a narrative that is inherently cinematic and sort of hits the beats that we expect from a movie, but also feels really true to the experience of your family and your father? Um, I loved what you just said about it being a dream of a dream. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. It's a tightrope walk. It's a tightrope walk. And, and, and to add on top of what I just said, it's, it's, it's not only that. I know this is not from a Taiwanese perspective, if that makes sense. To me, in some ways, it's an authentic film because obviously we have Taiwanese actors and they're speaking the right dialect and, and you know they're all native speakers. But for me, this is really the perspective. It's told from essentially a, a, an American perspective. It's, 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 it's almost, I can imagine myself listening to my dad's stories. Like, you know, I know that I don't want to spoil the end of the movie, but there's a way you can interpret it as this main character telling the story to someone else. And, and I think it's implied who that is, but, but that's kind of the, the, the film itself is almost uh, in meta textually is almost like a message, right? It's, it's that it's never too late to share these experiences with the next generation, no matter what you've been told as, as a young kid culturally. And so, um, you know, for me, it was threading a needle. It was getting information and getting these stories and getting these emotional narratives out of my dad and out of my mom, out of my sister, but not making it a documentary, not making it just word for word the same, and not making it a, a slice of life movie either. You know, I love those kinds of movies, but this movie has a narrative. It has a beginning, middle, and end. And um, as you said, there are elements that are highly fictionalized for the audience's sake because you don't want to make the movie homework, uh, ideally. You want to, I know mean, it's a damning word in some circles, but you want to entertain. You want to be compelling and you want to, you know, push people through the narrative. You want to sort of, um, have them be interested into what's going to happen next. And so it's all of those things being balanced. Um, I wanted there to be enough room for my imagination to fill some of the spaces and, 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 you know, many of the big story turns are completely fictionalized. And, you know, the UN character in, is in some ways, you know, his love interest is in some ways a metaphor. It's in some ways a symbol. And, and it's not necessarily the literal truth of what happened, but it's more about how he feels like he made potentially the wrong decision and what he gave up. And so she is kind of a symbol of that as well. There are two shots in Tiger Tail that I have a feeling are going to stay with me for a while, and I feel like they mirror each other. Um, and without sort of giving spoilers away, there are two goodbyes. They're, they're Pingvi's mom's goodbye and, and his goodbye after his lunch with Yuan. And they're both they're intense emotional moments. And I'm curious... Just based on having two of those in one movie is rather remarkable. And I think there are some other sort of second tier ones that will also stick with me and I'll remember at random times. And I'm curious, what single images from film have stayed with you the longest? Oh, wow. Um, That's a big question. That's a big question. Uh, I think um, 
I, I, I have to go to Kubrick on some of this stuff just because it's yeah. too, it's too, you it's too real. Go wrong. I mean, it's, it's, it's Barry Lyndon. It's honestly, I, I saw, I was lucky enough to see that in theaters pretty recently before this coronavirus stuff happened. And I know, I know it's very, it's just, I think it's top of mind because I just saw it, but it's those super wides. It's those super wides of where, where he's a spec and it start and it, you know, it either pulls out or pull, pushes in. I'm like, you can do that. <laughs> it's like, you right. can do that in a movie. That's, that's really like, that's what, when I get excited is when, uh, obviously the biggest thing is that it works emotionally and it works in the context right. of the story. But I also get excited as someone who's, uh, who's directing is, is, when rules are broken and, and when things are done where it's like in the hands of an amateur, it would look amateurish, but in the hands of a master, it looks genius. And so uh, that that's one that, that really comes to mind. Um, I think uh, more recently than that, I, again, I, 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 I always go back to just, you know, just the greats, man, just the greats. And I know we were just talking about sunrise, but there's a, there's a, there's a tracking shot where I believe they're on, they're like above the swamp and it goes through. Like, I just, I just remember the technique of that where it just, it, it I couldn't believe what they were doing because it's 1920, whatever, when that movie right. was made. And I was like, I was looking around the theaters like, is anyone else seeing this and how crazy it is that they were able to do this? Um, I don't know that those are, those are, those are sort of uh, uh, very sort of film schooly ones. Um, but as far as more recent ones, I'm trying to think really affecting. Um, this wasn't a shot so much as just a storytelling thing, but I remember watching the namesake, the Mirror movie, and just being really affected by the sort of parent child story in that movie yeah. and not realizing a movie could be about that. It's very as simple as that. And, you know, there's no coincidence yeah. probably that this movie is a, is a father daughter story. And, and, you know, it's, you know, one of the most intense sort of relationships I've had in my life is, is it's not intense in the sense of, you know, argumentative or anything, but just, you know, complicated is, is with my parents and with my dad. And so I think um, that was very inspirational kind of in making this movie as well. So two more questions. I'm going to let Kate ask both. Ooh, very exciting. Uh, you know, I think you're hitting on something that really resonates in your work for me particularly. And it's one of my favorite qualities in any kind of art, which is this idea that things are always kind of bittersweet. Even when things are good, they're tinged with this idea that, you know, it's not always going to be this way and vice versa. Um, whether it's Parks and Rec, Master of None, Tiger Tail, I there's so little comedy that's rooted in real emotionality now. Why is it so important for you to start from that place of vulnerability and emotion, even when you're telling a story that is comedic or, you know, touches on some lighter themes? Uh, I, I think that's just what makes it a bit of a deeper experience for me. And I know that sounds, I don't, I hope it doesn't sound too pretentious when you're talking about comedy, but uh, you know, we're talking about stuff that sticks with you. And I think stuff that sticks with you is oftentimes the, the emotion of it. And, and, and look, I love a good joke as much as anyone else. And then there's places for things that are purely joke based. I love those movies and shows, but for me, I, I gravitate more towards what is the emotional story of this show or this film and how does it relate to my life and how does it relate to, again, not to sound too grandiose, but the human experience and how does it inform how we live our lives? And, and this goes back to, this is way too sort of, uh, you know, academic an explanation, but that's kind of the purpose of stories, right? It's like, they're all about, how we live our lives. You know, that is so general to say, but they're all just tackling that idea from different angles. And, you know, whether it's a, a movie about love or a movie about war, it's all about how we interact with other people and how we come to terms with our own lives. And um, again, that's a very broad answer to, uh, I, I think, a personal taste question, which is I like when things are relatively grounded. I like when people behave like human beings. And I think that there is the potential for small human stories to have a grand scale and to feel cinematic, for lack of a better word, and to feel like bigger stories, even if, you know, the world isn't exploding or, you know, a meteor isn't going to come kill us all. <laughs> like there, there's still a way for these stories to feel, mm, you know, bigger and, and more cinematic. Yeah, and I think that's a great uh, sort of lead into our final question. Speaking about, you know, the human experience of movies and sharing that and letting those stories resonate throughout the ages. 
if you could pick one movie that you could show simultaneously for every human being on planet Earth, what would you pick? Whoa, uh, I, that's too big a, a, a question for me, but I will I will sta- take a stab at an answer just because it it's it's was one of the inspirations for this movie, and and that is the movie E.E. E. by Edward Yang, which is a two thousand uh, movie that that uh, is a Taiwanese Taiwanese American film, and um, it really sort of uh, again as I mentioned earlier, is it in some ways a small story because it's just about a family and you know, people aren't shooting each other and <laughs> things aren't exploding, but uh, it's about how we relate to each other. It's about how family relates to each other. And um, it's extremely empathetic without being melodramatic or contrived. And so, um, yeah, I give that movie a watch. I also think that it's a movie that probably not as many people have seen. So um, I, I would love to recommend Hobbs and Shaw, but you know, a lot of people have that covered. So they've seen that already. So <laughs> give this give this movie a watch and, and it makes a great double feature with Tiger Tail. Love it. Alan, thank you. Thank you guys. Thank you so much, Alan. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. From Luminary Media, The Blacklist Podcast is a production of The Blacklist and Ninth Planet Audio. Our executive producers are me, Franklin Leonard, Kate Hagan, Hans Sani, and Jimmy Miller. Gabrielle Horton is our lead producer. Nicholas Bertel composed our theme music, and this episode was edited and mixed by Kevin Liu. You can find me on Twitter at Franklin Leonard, at Franklin J. Leonard on Instagram. Kate is that Hagen girl, girl, G-R-R-L, on both. And we, The Blacklist, are the, T-H-E-B-L-C-K-L-S-T. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.